Letter 19. Unsent. Verilies. He does his good works, shrouded in tricks of the hand. You might be all clued up on the mysteriousness of it, but I learned in times gone by that even when the Mighty One tells you something, you want to be careful what you believe. This is the hilarious side of our Holy Father. Because even if his words is carved in granite, right in front of your nose, you probably ain't read them right. What the Almighty prophesied is, your first coming, then your second coming. The first one is upon us. On this Monday, you and me shall sit in the visits hall and speak of things. Only, what I must warn you is, I will not say nothing of what happened to my stunning sister. Even worse, I will pretend that I ain't got no clue what happened to her. Not for the first time, you will think to yourself, what the fuck is Marley doing now? When you leave, it will feel like you left empty-handed. But when you check again, you will see your pockets ain't empty. Cause you will find this letter I slipped into one of them. Surprise, surprise! And I know what you will say next. You will say, Not only is this girl a fibber, she is fucking brazen. But you need to grasp one lone scientific fact, Otto. And this is it. Slipping my secret letter into your pocket is the only way to make sure two good things happen. For one thing, cause it's in your pocket, what I wrote in this secret letter can't never be sniffed by the nostrils of Frank Furness, nor none of his nosy network. Am I right? Yes, I am. For another thing, I can be sure that after you read this secret letter, you will rush back for your second coming. You don't know it yet, but that is what I prophesy. It even says in the good book that it ain't only the good Lord who can dream up what happens next. There's loads who can do this. I mean, just look at the four Norsemen of the Calypso. If beardy blokes from Lapland can do it, so can I. And this is what I prophesy will happen once you read my secret letter in secret. You will think about all the bollocks and fibs I said in your first coming. And, hey, presto besto, you will hurry back and do your second coming. Do you see? Because you will be bursting to find out what happens next. Plus, I shall add with my pointy finger, you will do all of this even though you will not credit not one jot of what I'm just about to tell you now in my secret letter. Not until the day you dig up the buried body, that is. I can hear the cogs grinding in your cleverish brain. You will be thinking, what's she fantasizing about now? Why is she so keen for my second coming to happen anyways? You will be thinking, what fucking body? Well, Mr. Solicitor, you need to forbear. We will come to all that shit presently. If you want to know why I'm so keen for your second coming, that's an easy one. 
It's cause our Father who art said in his own prophecy that my poor soul won't be saved till after your second coming. But the godly one ain't said holy fuck all about when you will do this second visit. That is the rubbery bit. It means your second coming might take ages before it happens. Which means a miserable sinner like me needs to plan ahead to make sure it don't take you forever and ever to save her downtrodden soul. So, we come to the next bit, which is called my Book of Revelations. Cause for you to save me, there is three things that needs to be revelated all at once. The first will shock you. The second will make you sit up and think. The third will come as a total fucking bombshell. So brace yourself. My first revelation is this. For as long as I live and breathe, I never wish to leave the inside of a prison. Even if I don't snuff it for a thousand years, I wish to do all my living and breathing behind bars where it is safe. I'm guessing you're smirking. You're fucking shaking your head, aren't you? But I will laugh out loud if you try and say, it's not been too long since she's been behind bars forever. She will chew on her words once she's done a few more years of her life stretch. Nope. I will say, fuck off and listen. Here behind bars, there ain't nothing no one can do to me. It's safe as houses in here. Not only that, all you get, you get for free. It's warm. There's plenty of like-minded company. There's a bed with bedding each night. I get slops to eat. I get to do hot showers with all the other lady sinners. If I'm a good girl, I get to go to the gym. The work is light. During the days, whenever I want, I can sit in the chapel and pray for salvation. I ask you, what more does a girl need? Drugs? Easy. I can sell any kind I like and make a mint doing it. Sinning? A cinch. I can have sordid relations all day long if I choose. Sordid relations of any variety. So, dear Otto, don't try telling me I'm better off on the streets of fucking London. My second revelation is, even though I will be safe as houses for the rest of my living days, what people forget is, my soul is drowning on account of what's happened. That's why it needs saving. It don't matter if I'm in prison or not. Even prison is a shithole, and my life ain't worth living, so long as my poor soul don't get dragged out of the river it's drowning in. And who's the bloke for the job? It's you, sir. I hear you say, I'm a fucking solicitor. I don't know nothing about saving souls. Never fear. I will tell you how straight away. All you need to do is follow these 14 easy steps. 1. Pack a torch and a spade and a bin bag. 2. Put on a dark hoodie. 3. Wait till the middle of the night. 4. Go to Bollings Lane, Barking, London. 5. 
Find the building made of tinted black windows. Six. Count thirty paces along the barbed wire fence. Seven. Crawl through the hole that's hidden by a bush. Eight. Go round the back where the river is. Nine. Make sure no cameras or nothing sees you. Ten. Go to the shoreline to the sunken shopping trolley. Eleven. With your spade, dig in the mud where the trolley is. Twelve. Take out the bones or skull or whatever you find. Thirteen. Put it in your bin bag. And fourteen. Fuck off out of it where you come from. After you're done digging up my grave, you can hurry back for your second coming. And when you do that, Otto, I will revelate the rest of my side of the story. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. By the by, did you like my poem called Two Birds? I wrote it about everything what's happened to me. But those words don't revelate near enough for you to know shit about what's really happened. There's hidden meanings, which are double meanings. Scarly learned me how to do those. She also teached how it ain't professional to say what your double meanings mean. Only, if you can't think what they mean, this secret letter will help you. Cause that dead body is where I told you it is. It ain't no fake. It's the real bits of a poor dead soul, left in a ditch and forgotten about. In your first coming, you won't have no clue about none of this, Otto. You will be searching. You will hop on about what Emilia Godwin told you. I suppose you will do your sly legal guessing. Fine and well. But don't forget, I will be fibbing all along. I will say, fuck no. This horrid crime ain't nothing to do with Scarley's ex-beanstalker, Julius Not Julian. I will say, apart from being a wank stain, he weren't nothing but a crackpot. You will see. I will talk utter and total malarkey. Don't you fucking believe it, though. Here is my third revelation. That wank stain has only got away with sheer murder. And once you've been round to his place in Barking and dug up my dead and buried body, you and me will fucking prove it. Amen. Because of the circumstances, my meeting with Louise was always going to be constrained. I was expecting her to be upset, and she did show her grief. I knew I would need to allow her time to say what she had to say. There were many questions I might have asked, but I simply couldn't. I thought about you constantly, and our meeting the night before, 
and how excited you were when I started talking about Marley's case. Already then, your excitement was pulling me through. The idea that I would be able to continue that conversation with you later in the afternoon made it all seem worthwhile. But while your interest gave the case new momentum, I was conscious of how rash it had been to lend you my laptop. I didn't have Marley's consent from my daughter or anyone else outside the firm to have sight of her letters. There was only one way that you could have unfettered access like this. You had to become my assistant. For the purposes of privilege and data protection measures, we decided that you could be regarded as completing your English internship under my personal supervision. That you might speak with others about Marley's case, or even misplace my laptop, loomed as a more ominous worry. It distracted me further. It hampered my note-taking, and Louise was becoming confused. She'd been going over the details of the last time she'd seen Charlotte alive at Liverpool Street Station when she finally gave in to her grief. Her flat was dark, the curtains were drawn. It was making me feel as if I had to huddle. At that point, I said we should call it a day. I insisted. As soon as we stepped outside, I felt better. Louise had agreed to let me make a copy of Charlotte's notebook. As we walked into Brixton, I can only say I was glad of the sunshine. While we made the photocopy, Louise told me that in 2017 she'd been approached by detectives from Cambridge. They asked if she knew anything about what they were calling the faltering relations between Charlotte and Marley. Other than to tell them about the curious incident at the train station, Louise had been unable to help. She was disappointed when she was told that she wasn't going to be required as a witness for the trial. I might have stayed with her longer. There was so much more she might have said. But I needed to catch the underground across town to meet you. At the same time, I was keen to examine my copy of the notebook so that we could discuss it together. I did have the presence of mind to ask Louise if she'd spoken to the police about Charlotte's affair with Julius Haft. She said that she hadn't. She'd been asked only to provide them with information concerning Charlotte's relationship with Marley. This suggested to me the manner in which the police may have conducted their investigation. From the outset, they could put Marley at the scene. She'd been holding the murder weapon. They wouldn't have been thinking about other suspects. They would simply have been looking for any further evidence to demonstrate that Marley was guilty. On the underground to Kew, I studied Charlotte's notebook, we might say, with your eyes. There were no exact dates in it. Her system at the beginning of each entry had been to jot down the month and the year and to leave it at that. The first entries were made in October 2015. The last entries were made in February 2017. The final entry seemed to be a poem. It didn't have a title. The first line was, Life is dead. The last line, Amen to this. It may not have been a poem at all. It may have been a loose collection of notes on a theme, for all I knew then. But the words had their own rhythm. There were rhymes in it, I thought. And while it ended abruptly, it seemed to speak to me. I was already aware that pages had been torn out of the middle of the original notebook. 
I'd worked out that the missing section consisted of eight pages. At the torn base of five of the missing pages, there were a number of unintelligible pen strokes. Considering this now, I made a sideways association with the poem Secret Scarlet. Marley had mentioned it in her remarkable 18th letter. The title alone provoked me. Let's say Charlotte had been working on Secret Scarlet shortly before she died. Perhaps the whole or part of that poem was on those missing pages. Or perhaps it was right in front of me. I found myself turning back to the final entry in the notebook. Whether this was a poem or a sketch for one, I couldn't tell. It was written on six sides. It had in it the words somber, dampened, and flames. These words appeared in an earlier entry in the notebook, taken from a conversation that Louise had had with Charlotte on New Year's Day 2017. Life is dead. This heat for life. Its somber tones. Its plastic streams that drones the flames. Never dampened. Thorny lips is all there is. Its God is dead. Its life is dead. They're all the same. It's all a flame. Its heated words is all there was. That nothing lives is all there is. Amen to this. This was the first thing I showed you. It was a hot afternoon. We were on a bench under the shade of a cluster of tall sequoias. We'd been walking for over an hour, speaking of nothing but Molly's appeal. In so many ways, the perpetuation of our conversation had become more important to me than the appeal itself. I mentioned that if the final entry in the notebook was a poem, it was impossible to know if it was finished. In your matter-of-fact way, you pointed out that the use of the word Amen would indicate a conclusion. Do you remember? I was still skeptical. Then you said, I think it's a poem about Haft. What makes you think that? The word Amen. Amen. You don't see the link? I asked you to enlighten me. I didn't see the link. You had my laptop open. I saw you were reading through Marley's tenth letter, nodding to yourself. I just looked at you, pleased with what I saw in the cool air around us. The moment passed. You didn't enlighten me. You were already on to your next thought, striding into the case as only a child might, in leaps and bounds, as if everything you saw had to be picked up and bounced around. The gestures you made as you drove your points home were exactly the kind of gestures I might have made, if only I'd been able to think of a more compelling argument myself. Your voice was animated too, just as mine had been once, whenever the exhilaration of a good idea struck me. At some point, you were reading out the only sequence of numbers in Charlotte's notebook. Two nine 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 seven eight seven two nine four five. You wondered aloud if it might be a mobile number, but mobile numbers always start with zero. I said. Our conversation became adversarial then. What do you think it is? 
Maybe it's random. It can't be random. Or a code, maybe. Charlotte wouldn't write random numbers. You're right. It must signify something. You know what's strange about Molly's letters? There's lots strange about her letters. It's something about the way she remembers. What's wrong with it? It's too good. You were scrolling through her second letter when you said this. You read part of it out loud. And now I will finish this side of my story by, by telling, telling about my buried, buried memory from the beginning, the beginning of Molly's life. life. It was it before was the, the social, social took me away. I was only tiny, barely out of swaddles. What I can see is my real mum smiling. You stopped reading to look at me. Why are you looking at me? Don't you find that strange? What? What Molly is remembering. What do you mean? You read on. What I can see is my real mum smiling. I know she's, I my, know real she's my real mum because I've seen her in photos after. It was pitch dark. I remember how cold it was. My mum was bobbing her head from side to side with her breath all round her face and the fire glowing. There's a bonfire behind her. I can see a guy in the blackness. He's burning from the legs up. She doesn't mean a guy, I told you. What do you mean? It's Guy Fawkes. Who's he? Historical. A plot to blow up Parliament. He was caught and executed. Every year on the 5th of November, English people burn effigies of him. Guy Fawkes. A terrorist. What kind? Catholic. This made you wrinkle your nose. I was reminded at once that Marie had often wrinkled her nose. I don't know why you wrinkled yours, but I knew it meant something was coming. As we'd strayed so far from whatever point you were trying to make, I dared to ask how your mother was these days. She still thinks about you, you said. There was a silence then. It was a silence that said everything we couldn't say. Whatever might have ensued, it was stopped in its tracks. I hadn't spoken to Marie for over half a year, not since Christmas. My plan had been to call her to talk about the real reason you were in London. This short twist in our own dialogue was just the sort of thing that prevented me from acting on my plan. It's peculiar, don't you think, you were asking, how Marley talks about herself as if she's someone else. I nodded. It was peculiar. And this fantastical memory of hers. Which one? When she was a baby. Why fantastical? When do you stop being a baby? Some never do, I said. Your appreciative smile was uplifting, but only for a second. You went straight back to the point you wanted to make. Referring to the memory of the burning effigy, you argued that as you understood it, babies aren't able to form lasting memories of events. Marley may have been a bit older, I said. You may have noticed she can be partial to exaggeration. If I were being kind, I might say it's a rhetorical device she overuses. This sounded condescending, even to me. 
I regretted saying it straight away. You'd already scrolled back to her first letter. You read out a few sentences Molly had written. My buried memory from the beginning of Molly's life. It was before the social came and took me away. I was only tiny, barely out of swaddles. I had to rub my chin. I could see that by referring to herself as tiny, still in swaddles, Molly may have been speaking of a memory she couldn't possibly have formulated. It wasn't exactly evidence of anything. To me, it simply raised more questions about the authenticity of her whole account. I'd decided not to reveal my own doubts about her identity. I justified this to myself reasonably, I thought. As yet, there was nothing concrete to support the theory that Marley might actually be Charlotte, posing as her twin. So I didn't say anything. I feared that any open speculation about this would seem too far-fetched and might even undermine your confidence in me as a lawyer. To ease the tension, I felt, I changed the subject. What about Julius Haft, I said. You nodded, instantly ready with your opinion on this aspect of the case. Haft was almost certainly at the bottom of it all, you said. It didn't seem to concern you that almost all of the information available to us about him had come from an unreliable source. Even Marley's afraid of him, you said. I suppose they both were, I suggested. Fear breeds fear. What happened to the baby? Which baby? Charlotte's baby. I think there may have been an abortion. There's a poem, I said. You haven't seen it yet. Forgery of a Young Woman. It makes references to an abortion. Louise Gross has the original. I can show it to you. You went quiet as you absorbed this. The thing about Marley, you said in the end, is that she blames everyone else. She's claiming to be innocent, I said. The innocent often blame everyone else. Yes, but what about Haft? What about him? He's the only one she doesn't blame. I was beginning to marvel at your mental grasp of the letters, and particularly the way in which you could navigate them so efficiently on my laptop to illustrate what you were thinking. Although Molly liked to play the blame game, it did strike me as well that she'd somehow stopped short with Haft. I couldn't remember where I'd picked up on this, though. It's this bit, you said. You read it out. If Emilia Godwin has said something juicy about the Beanstalker, it's only because she wants to put you off the scent by making you think she fancies you before she pounces. I laughed this off, but you were right. It was curious that Marley had chosen not to cast aspersions in that letter when it came to Julius Haft. The warmth of the afternoon didn't impede your enthusiasm, and I was so delighted to see it. And so, as we meandered around the gardens, we considered why Marley should have been so scornful of Amelia Godwin. That's when I told you she'd actually been approached by Haft, shortly before Charlotte died, to set up some kind of meeting. As far as my job went, this new information is what had brought me to London in the first place, I said. As we strolled along the riverbank, 
It seemed to me I was feeling the sun on my face for the first time in years. The following morning, we would drive to the prison together to speak with Molly in person. I really do wish I'd seen then just how far ahead of me you were in your understanding of the case.